Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the editor in chief of Harvardism. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which covers the October 2018 issue of the journal. The featured article this month is titled "Coronary Artery Compression from Epicardial Leads: More Common Than We Think" by Ma et al. from Boston Children's Hospital. In an accompanying video author interview. Conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Morin, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. In this study, all patients with epicardial leads who underwent castor angiography and computed tomography were retrospectively reviewed. Coronary compression was noted in eight of 145 patients. Or 5.5% with epicardial leads. The median age at the diagnosis was 11 years. Among those with coronary compression, six of eight, or 75%, had symptoms, including one sudden death, three patients with chest pain, including two with associated troponinemia, and two had unexplained fatigue. Seven patients underwent surgical repositioning. Of their lead, the authors conclude that they found a higher incidence of coronary artery compression by epicardial leads than previously reported in the literature. Epicardial leads are being used both in pediatric and in adult EP practice. This paper shows that one in twenty patients may suffer from coronary artery compression and its complications. Coronary artery compression needs to be included in the differential diagnosis for patients who are symptomatic after epicardial lead implantation, even long after. The October issue is a focus issue on sudden deaths. The first article is written by Montilla et al., titled "Type 2 Diabetes and Coronary Artery Disease: Preserved Ejection Fraction and Sudden Cardiac Deaths." The data came from a prospective observational study called ATEMIS, A R T E M I S, including 834 subjects with type 2 diabetes and 1,112 subjects without diabetes. During a mean follow-up of 6.3 years, sudden cardiac deaths or sudden cardiac arrest occurred in 50 patients. The prevalence. Was higher in diabetic patients than in non-diabetic patients, with a hazard ratio of 2.6. However, the non-sudden death component of cardiac mortality was not significantly different between these two groups. The authors conclude that type 2 diabetes is an independent risk factor for sudden cardiac death or sudden cardiac arrest in CAD patients with. Preserved ejection fraction. An important lesson is that diabetic patients with CAD are at risk of sudden death, even if they have a preserved ejection fraction. The next paper is titled "Gender Differences in Patients with Brugada Syndrome and Arrhythmic Events." Data from a survey on arrhythmic events in 678 patients by Milman et al. From Tel Aviv University, Israel, the authors performed a multi-center survey 
on arrhythmic events in Brugada syndrome. In Asians, the male-to-female ratio for arrhythmic events was about ninefold higher than that in whites. A spontaneous type 1 Brugada ECG was associated with an earlier onset of arrhythmic events in pediatric females. Females less frequently showed spontaneous type 1 Brugada ECG or arrhythmia inducibility at EP study. 48% of females with arrhythmic events were carriers of an SCN5A mutation as compared with only 23% of males. This study confirms that female patients with Brugada syndrome are much rarer, less frequently display type 1 Brugada ECG, and exhibit lower inducibility rates than do males. It is interesting to note that male predominance in arrhythmic events is much larger in Asians than in whites. The latter findings pose significant challenges to geneticists and basic scientists in their search for the molecular mechanisms of Brugada syndrome. The next article is written by Morita et al. from Okayama University, Japan. The title of the paper is Progression of Electrocardiographic Abnormalities Associated with Initial Ventricular Fibrillation in Asymptomatic Patients with Brugada Syndrome. The subjects of this study included 14 patients with VF and 48 consecutive asymptomatic patients, all with Brugada syndrome. They defined early phase ECGs as ECG taken greater than six months before VF. Late phase ECGs are ECGs taken during the initial VF event. ECG parameters of the early and late phases were not different except for decreased ST voltage and low incidence of type 1 ECG in asymptomatic patients. In patients with ventricular fibrillation, ECGs at the late phase had longer QRS intervals and intervals between the peak and the end of the T wave and more frequent type 1 ECG and fragmented QRS than did ECGs at the early phase. The authors conclude that QRS and STT wave abnormalities developed in association with the initial VF events. Abbreviation of conduction disturbance, in addition to Brugada syndrome ECG, promotes ventricular fibrillation. These findings suggest that there may be progression of diseases from one time point to the other. However, without a prospective study, it is difficult to confirm that these changes were due to progression of disease rather than due to transient and preventable clinical factors. Next up is a paper titled A 10-Year Review of Sudden Deaths During Sporting Activities by Dennis et al. from University of Sydney, Australia. The authors reviewed all autopsies conducted at their forensic medicine facility between 2006 and 2015. A total of 19,740 autopsies were completed in the study period. There were 201 sports-related adult deaths 
at an instance rate of 0.76 to 1.9 per 100,000 participant years. Of the adult cases, 68% were due to cardiac causes, with coronary artery disease the most frequent cause. Of the 15 child deaths, 33% were arrhythmic or presumed arrhythmic, and 33% were related to inherited cardiomyopathies. The authors conclude that sudden cardiac death during sport is rare. Deaths are mostly due to coronary artery disease in adults and cardiomyopathy or arrhythmia in children. A limitation is that the study was retrospective. Some of the pre-morbid conditions may not be included in the report. Therefore, it is unclear if these deaths could have been prevented. Up next, this paper by Minami et al. from Tokyo Women's Medical University in Japan. The paper is titled B-type natriuretic peptide and the risk of sudden death in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The authors measured plasma BNP levels at the initial evaluation in 346 patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The median BNP level in the study patients was 197.2 picogram per ml. During a median follow-up period of 8.4 years, 37 patients experienced the combined endpoint of sudden deaths or potentially lethal arrhythmic events. Patients with BNP level of greater than 312 picogram per ml were at a significantly higher risk of sudden deaths and the combined endpoint than were patients with low BNP levels. Multivariable um, analysis showed that high BNP levels were an independent determinant of the combined endpoint. The authors conclude that elevated BNP levels may be associated with sudden deaths and the combination of sudden deaths or potentially lethal arrhythmic events in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The journal has previously published two papers on BNP and sudden deaths. In 2014, Levine et al. reported BNP is independently associated with ventricular arrhythmias in patients with ICDs, and Medina et al. reported in 2016 that BNP was an independent risk factor for ventricular arrhythmias in the medit CRT population. All three studies suggest that BNP is important in arrhythmia risk stratification. Up next is a paper titled A QRS Access-Based Algorithm to Identify the Origin of Scar-Related Ventricular Tachycardia in the 17-Segment American Heart Association Model by Andrew et al. from Barcelona, Spain. The authors used a frontal plane axis-based ECG algorithm together with the polarity leads V3 and V4 to predict the segment of origin of VT. The results were compared with the site of origin determined during invasive EP mapping procedures. The ECG correctly predicted the segment of origin in 82% of the time. There were no differences in the accuracy of the algorithm based on the segment of origin or the type of structural heart disease. 
The authors conclude that this novel QRS-axis-based algorithm accurately identifies the segment of origin of VT in the 17-segment American Heart Association model. Non-invasive determination of the origin of VT based on surface ECG is an important but a difficult task. I can refer the readers to an accompanying editorial written by Bazan and Marchlinsky, who review multiple other ECG algorithms and suggest possible further improvements of the ECG criteria. Muser et al. from University of Pennsylvania wrote the following article titled Outcomes with prophylactic use of percutaneous lip ventricular assist devices in high-risk patients undergoing castroablation of scar-related ventricular tachycardia, a propensity-matched analysis. The authors studied 45 high-risk patients who received percutaneous lip ventricular assist devices, or PLVADs, while undergoing castroablation of scar-related VT. They also included the control population with similarly high risk, but without prophylactic PLVAC placement. Periprocedural acute hemodynamic decompensation occurred in 7% of the prophylactic PLVAC group and in 23% in the control group. The subsequent 12 months cumulative instance of ET was not different but the 12-month instance of death or transplant was 33% versus 66% respectively. In multivariate analysis, prophylactic PLVAD was independently associated with death or transplant. The authors conclude that prophylactic PLVAD placement in high-risk patients undergoing castor ablation of scar-related VT is associated with a reduced risk of acute hemodynamic decompensation and death or transplant during follow-up without affecting VT-free survival. Future prospective randomized trials are needed to confirm the results of their findings. Next up is a paper titled Ventricular Fibromas in Children Arrhythmia Risk and Outcomes, a multi-center study by John Settle from University Hospital Bristol in Bristol, United Kingdom. Ventricular fibromas are the second most common type of cardiac tumor in children. The authors report on a total of 19 patients with fibromas. Arrhythmias were common with five patients presenting with cardiac arrest and five others having documented ventricular tachycardia. Nine of these patients have undergone surgical resection at various hospitals, and all these patients have survived with good long-term outcomes. There were no recurrences of arrhythmia after surgery, and the need for a defibrillator was alleviated in all causes. The authors conclude that ventricular fibromas have a high propensity to cause malignant ventricular arrhythmias, and if they are not managed appropriately, mortality is high. The outcomes of surgical resection are good, regardless of tumor size, 
and this represents the best therapeutic option, with most patients being symptom-free on long term. An important lesson from this case series is that preventative surgical resection is associated with good clinical outcomes. This is particularly true in small children, among whom the complication rates of ICDs remain high. The next paper is prospective blinded evaluation of a novel sensing methodology designed to reduce inappropriate shocks by the subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator by Tunes et al. of Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the effects of a new high-pass filter called the SmartPass on shock frequency in ambulatory patients with a subcutaneous ICD. The study cohort consisted of 1984 patients, and a total of 880 shocks were adjudicated. At implantation, SmartPass was enabled in one-third of the patients. The results showed that SmartPass reduced the risk of all inappropriate shocks by 68%. The instance of inappropriate shocks was 4.3% in the SmartPass-enabled arm versus 9.7% in the SmartPass-disabled arm. The instance of appropriate shocks was similar, as was the time to treat the first appropriate shock between groups. The authors conclude that the SmartPass filter reduces inappropriate shocks from the subcutaneous ICD without a negative effect on delivery of appropriate shocks. An accompanying editorial by Swerdlow points out that in transvenous ICDs, some high-pass filters have been associated with failure to treat VF. Thus, there is reason for, ca for caution. The present study is an encouraging first step to eliminate a major problem of subcutaneous ICD that is inappropriate shocks. However, more data will be needed to further confirm the clinical benefit of the new high-pass algorithm. Houston et al. from the Medical University of South Carolina wrote the following article titled Acute Biventricular Hemodynamic Effects of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy in Right Bundle Branch Block. 40 patients, 9 with right bundle branch block and 31 with left bundle branch block, undergoing CRT implantation, underwent a temporary patient pacing with varying pacing configurations and AV delay. The results show that patients with left bundle branch block had a greater LVDPDT maximum response to CRT than did patients with RBBB. In patients with RBBB, single or dual-side RV pacing configurations resulted in greater increases in RV-DP-DT max than did biventricular pacing. Optimal AV delays and maximized RV-DP-DT max were shorter than optimal AV delays for LV-DP-DT max. Further, 
AV delay is chosen to maximize improvement in RV DPDT max frequently resulted in negative effects on LV DPDT max. The authors conclude that biventricular hemodynamic response in heart failure patients with RBBB might be improved by optimizing pacing modalities and AV delays. This may be particularly important in patients in whom RV failure predominates, such as patients with pulmonary hypertension and LV assist devices. Because RV failure is a clinical problem without any good solution available, the findings reported in the present study may lead to the improvement of device management in these patients. The next article is Prognostic Value of Global Longitudinal Strain in Heart Failure Patients Treated with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy by Kittier Law from Leiden University Medical Center, the Netherlands. The study included 829 heart failure patients treated with CRT. The primary endpoint was a combination of all-cause mortality, heart transplantation, and LV assist device implantation. The secondary endpoint was the occurrence of ventricular arrhythmias or appropriate implantable defibrillator device therapies. During follow-up, 332 patients reached the primary endpoint and 233 presented with a secondary endpoint. Patients in the quartile with the most imp impaired LV global longitudinal strain had a two-fold higher risk of reaching the combined endpoint com compared with patients in the best quartile of LV global longitudinal strain. LV global longitudinal strain was significantly associated with the combined endpoint. The authors conclude that in this large cohort of CRT patients, baseline LV global longitudinal strain was independently associated with death transplant or LVAD implantation. Global longitudinal strain is measured by speckle tracking strain imaging as the average LV longitudinal chamber deformation in cardiac cycle. It is an important index of left ventricular systolic function and is useful in patients with both reduced and preserved ejection fraction. More studies are needed to further document the importance of strain in managing patients with arrhythmias. The next is left ventricular regional remodeling and lead position during cardiac resynchronization therapy by Kronberg et al. from Aarhus University Hospital, Denmark. A total of 107 consecutive patients were included. The change in systolic wall thickening from baseline to follow-up was minus 19% in concordant segments minus 0.1% in adjacent segments, and 20% in remote segments. In non-responders with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, the authors observed a significant reduction in wall thickening in concordant and adjacent segments with no increase in wall thickening in remote segments. The authors conclude that during CRT, systolic wall thickening increases in segments remote to LVD position. An accompanying editorial by Wilson and Deshenis 
relates these remodeling changes to intracellular calcium concentration. The accumulation of myocardial calcium in high-pass, late-activated segments is expected to initiate hypertrophic signaling pathways leading to hypertrophy and heart failure. CRT restores a normal activation sequence and restores the intracellular calcium concentration, leading to reverse remodeling in late activated segments. The next article is Determinants of Heart Rate Variability in the General Population, the Lifelines Cohort Study, by Tikeni et al. from University of Groningen, the Netherlands. The authors analyzed baseline data of 10-second electrocardiograms from the Lifelines cohort study with 149,000 participants. They found that HRV strongly declined with age and was consistently higher in women. These demographic factors together explained 17.4% of the variance in root mean square of the successful differences. Adding lifestyle and psychosocial factors to the model as well as, uh, as well explained less than 0.5% of the variance. The authors concluded that age and sex were the most important determinants in this very large general population cohort, explaining almost one-fifth of the individual differences in HRV. The additional contribution of lifestyle and psychosocial factors are negligible. The strength of the study is a large number of participants included in the study. However, a single 10-second standard supine ECG segment may insufficiently reflect the potential impact of environmental factors and uh, psychosocial status. Wayne and all from the Cleveland Clinic wrote the next article titled Assessing the Accuracy of an Automated Atrial Fibrillation Detecting Algorithm Using Smartphone Technology the IRED study. This is a single-center adjudicator-blinded case series of 52 consecutive patients with atrial fibrillation. They also studied automated AF detection using the Cardia Mobile Cardiac Monitor, or KMCM, which is a popular smartphone-linked handheld device that can record cardiac rhythm tracings. The results were compared with 12-lead electrocardiograms. There were 225 nearly simultaneous acquired KMCM and ECG recordings. The KMCM automated algorithm interpretation had 96.6% sensitivity and 94.1% specificity for AF detection as compared with physician-interpreted ECGs. 62 recordings, so 27.6% were unclassified by the KMCM algorithm. In these instances, physician interpretation of KMCM recordings had 100% sensitivity and 79.5% specificity for AF detection as compared with 12-lead ECG interpretation. The authors conclude that the KMCM system provides sensitive and specific AF detection relative to 12-lead ECGs when an automated interpretation is provided. Patients with chronic diseases such as hypertension and diabetes rely on inexpensive equipment to frequently measure blood pressure and serum glucose levels for optimal disease control. 
It is also possible that similarly accurate and inexpensive automated AF detection methods can improve patient care. Next up is a complex aberrant splicing in the induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes from a patient with long QT syndrome carrying KCNQ1A344A splicing mutation by Uri Yangai from Shiga University of Medical Sciences, Japan. Type 1 long QT syndrome is caused by mutations of the KCNQ1 gene. The authors generated human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes from peripheral blood mononuclear cells obtained from a patient with long QT1 carrying the mutation of KCNQ1-A344ASPA splicing, which is a synonymous amino acid change of alanine to alanine at the residue 344, but causes a splicing error. Using those cells, the authors identified seven aberrant RNA variants, which were more complex compared with those in peripheral lymphocytes. After administering 500 nanomolar isoproterenol, action potential durations of human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes with that variant were significantly longer than those in the controls. The authors conclude that they have identified complex aberrant messenger RNA variants in the pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocyte model and successfully recapitulated the clinical phenotypes of the patient with concealed long QT type 1. A eukaryotic gene is transcribed to a precursor messenger RNA that is spliced into messenger RNA by removing their intronic sequences and retaining the exonic sequences. Splicing errors cause aberrant messenger RNA variants that in this case negatively affected potassium channel function causing long QT syndrome. Therefore, this study provides new insights into pathogenesis of a common long QT type 1 mutation. The next article is a hands-on article titled How to Perform Left Atrial Appendage Electrical Isolation Using Radio Frequency Ablation, written by Romeo et al. from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. It is followed by an unknown of the month titled A Wobbling Tachycardia, What is the Mechanism? by Moore et al. from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, Australia. This is followed by a special point-of-view article by Dr. Mel Scheinman, of UC San Francisco. In that article, Dr. Scheinman reflects on his long and illustrious career in cardiac electrophysiology. The Josephson Willens ECG this month is prepared by Dr. Hein Willens. The title of the ECG is a 73-year-old woman with high-degree AV block. In addition, we have four EP News articles. Finally, the journal publishes a guideline article entitled 2017-AHA-ACC-HR's Guideline for Management of Patients with Ventricular Arrhythmias and Prevention of Sudden Cardiac Deaths. The writing committee was chaired by Dr. Sana M. Al-Khatib. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief,
Dr. Pinchin Chen.